Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done, and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment, before the monsters came, Humanoids from the Deep Dive. Welcome to the podcast Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode, we'll see guests and myself give our take on an important movie monster and or film, and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. Today's episode, we'll be covering one of Clive Barker's most fun film worlds, and one that's particularly beloved for monster lovers like myself, 1990s Nightbreed, which Barker both directed and adapted based off his novel, uh, Cabal. Fans of the show can find us on Spotify, Google, iTunes, and Podbean, and follow us on Twitter at HFT Deep Dive. I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I'm an entertainment contributor for Forbes on genre film with Bylines and Nightmare on Film Street and Shutters the Bite, and I've co-edited two books on monster media, Alien Philosophy and Stranger Things in Philosophy, as well as having written book chapters on topics like the devil, hell, Cloverfield, Frankenstein. Uh, if it's nerdy, if it's monster related, it's my favorite. I've probably written about it. I'd like to introduce our uh, first our guest co-host, uh, Andrew Fleming Dunn. He's a Twitch streamer and co-host of the film podcast, The Rotating Chair. Thank you for co-hosting again, Andrew. Oh, awesome. It's always awesome to be here. A return to Midian is a welcome thing. Always. And Richard Newby is an author and contributor for The Hollywood Reporter with features in The New York Times and Fangoria. You can find his newest book, We Make Monsters, here on Amazon. Richard, thank you so much for stopping by the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about our chat today. Yeah, it was actually your idea to do uh, Nightbreed. And uh, I was like, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I just I wanted to do Nightbreed for a long time and I just wanted the right guest. And I was like, yes. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, just general plot summary, and we'll get into so much more detail. We have, we have time to get into the nitty gritty, but Nightbreed, based off of Clive Barker's novella Cabal, falls Aaron Boone, a patient of psychiatrist Philip K. Decker, who has regular dreams of a world full of monsters, and he's been over time convinced by Decker that he's responsible for a string of vicious killings. One day, Decker gives him hallucinogens instead of lithium and causes Boone to hallucinate, get hidden traffic, goes to the hospital. Decker, of course, who has a, a shady backstory we'll get to, uh, sends the police after Boone. And as they close in, he runs into Narciss, uh, a man convinced that he belongs in a place called Midian, a place where the monsters live, the place Boone dreams of, and Boone escapes the hospital for Midian. And that's the, uh, so much stuff happens after that basic point, but we have lots of time to get into the nitty gritty. It's so interesting for me because uh, Nightbreed is, I love Barker's stuff. I'm a big Hellraiser fan. I love the concept of this little underground civilization of the monstrous who are more sympathetic. It's an actual civilization. We'll talk about that, but I, I I wanted to start out by giving everyone a chance to talk about their impressions of of Nightbreed and also a little bit of a review out of five, just to see what your your critical thoughts are too. So maybe as, as our guest, Richard, how about you start? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I love Nightbreed. I mean, uh, obviously, because I, <laughs> I picked it, but yeah, it's just, 
it's such a cool and fascinating movie. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those movies that I kind of wish that I had seen uh, younger, you know, when I was a kid, because I was, I was a monster loving kid, um, you know, especially Cronenberg stuff and, and the blob and anything that's kind of uh, goopy, really heavily based in, in practical effects. And I would have, I would have loved this movie. And, you know, especially as someone who also is just a big fan of mythology and, and story building, you know, I, I come from a, a, a big background in, in comic books and Star Wars. And, and for me, Nightbreed is really like uh, the horror, you know, Star Wars in some way. Um, I, I love this idea of looking at monsters as heroic and sympathetic characters but also, you know, as part of a, a part of a lineage that that goes back, you know, I love this idea that, you know, all of the different breeds that we see, they're kind of the last of their race and they're tied to, you know, some of the the major monsters from from folklore, you know, stretching back to uh, the Middle Ages. And so I, I love that kind of idea of taking this comprehensive look at monsters in our culture and in our global uh, society and just kind of positioning them in a modern world. And really, um, you know, for me, it also kind of goes back to the Universal Monster movies, which I love, um, especially, you know, Frankenstein. And I think that there's some similarities uh, between this and that in terms of looking at a sympathetic monster. But especially with the townspeople at the end and, you know, chasing Frankenstein to that mm -hmm. windmill, I feel like this movie is very much kind of the, the next step in uh, what James Whale was doing with Frankenstein. Um, and it's done through Clive Barker's wild and fantastic mm -hmm. uh, imagination. Um, and I was lucky enough to, the first time I saw it, I actually saw the director's oh. cut first. So... <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit lucky in that way. I, I, I did uh, see the theatrical eventually, um, but yeah. So I always got the the complete <laughs> kind of uh, a story that that Barker was going. Through. Um, so yeah, it's just it's it's such a cool movie. I, I love all of the characters, uh, all of the the designs. Um, Decker in particular is probably one of my mm -hmm. favorite. Uh, horror movie villains just the the design of his mask and uh he has one of the scariest masks in horror yeah absolutely he does and cronenberg's perfectly chilled performance with as over the top as most of this movie is you have this absolute psycho who is so in control of every motion he makes it's it's wonderful yeah it's it's so chilling and like i i wish that cronenberg had done more acting because he yeah, it's it's such a, a brilliant performer performance guy that you mm -hmm. normally associate with directing yeah absolutely it's, it's so interesting too because uh i i still found it so shocking and haunting that scene where uh there well we'll get into this more in a little bit later but in the scene where there's there's a big raid right and he just dons the mask and uses the chaos to start casually killing people yeah <laughs> and i'm like what a commitment to a bit. Like, 
what type of committed evil you're like oh cool there's all this chaos i'm not gonna try and slink away and get away with it in the chaos i'm just gonna be like nobody cares if i openly kill people right now (laughs) and i love when somebody asks him you know why do you do these horrible things that you do and he's like because i like to there's no deep reasoning there's no i'm just a psycho i like to kill it's a Tuesday. I'm bored. Exactly. Um, I, I put on my calendar, you know, killing time question mark. Exactly. <laughs> and I love his, uh, I love his knife collection that he has like displayed on his. Oh, that, wall. <laughs> incredibly like eighties room with the bubble wall. Yeah. Behind them. It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, what do I go today? Do I go to the Schmittart? No, no. I used that last week. Um, maybe I'm going to try a challenge with the butter knife today. <laughs> like, what a, what a psychopath. Um, what about, what about you? Oh, wait, first, uh, out of five, what would you, what would you give the film? The director's cut version, of course. Uh, 4.5 out of five. Awesome. Cool. Uh, Andrew, what about you? Good, sir. Uh, I first came across Cabal, the, the short story. Um, like I'd known the cover of Nightbreed cause it had just one of those covers, but I, I, just never picked it up because there's just something about the attitude it gave off because it's it's like Boone in his leather jacket and he's got these monsters and it's a cool image but like I was a little edgelord at this time you know <laughs> and uh, my dad every summer would give me books end of the year here's your challenge for the summer finish these books and uh, there's no prize except that I read a bunch of awesome books <laughs> you know like it was a wonderful contest and uh, Cabal was one of these things it was like the the books of blood cabal pretty much all of his major work and uh i loved the story and then we rented the movie at some point you know or i, I mean i could have even reversed these in my mind because i'm not a fan of the theatrical cut at all uh first watched it and the setup is kind of brilliant and what we thought we were getting as kids was because i think no i did see the movie first sorry um you pop it in and you look at that cover and I'm expecting this group of monsters to be just slaughtering people or something, you know, like I, I almost expected like a biker gang of monsters. And what we get is something where it's the exact opposite of that. And I, it's a mess. The theatrical cut of this movie is unfortunately a mess. And um, mm-hmm. I didn't get to see the director's cut until it was released. What in like 2013, 2015, somewhere around there. And mm-hmm. it brought it back to what I wanted and uh like this is cabal uh for the most part i mean it's like 90 percent the novella and um you know as the older i got and as the internet blossomed because i also saw this movie and read this book at a time where the internet really wasn't a thing we were still at like 56k modems and uh you know you were lucky if you had it and i I remember researching the movie and finding out about its broken production and what morgan creek did and it's like like a lot of people i started to get hungry for this movie I never really got to see and that director's cut came out and I was like yes this this is almost the movie that I was promised and yeah I I like this movie a lot like I I love Nightbreed as a whole um, but the movie is something I still have issues with because sadly due to what Morgan Creek did um, a lot of the movie's broken in some some fundamental ways but the great outweighs the bad, I think, but it's still a little bit, just a little tarnish on there for me. So I, I'm at about a three and a half uh, to four. I'm like somewhere in between those two. I just can't decide. And it's, it's not the film's fault, which is the worst part about it. It's, it's, it's sure. not Barker's fault. It's not the film's fault. Morgan Creek had no idea what they had. 
they didn't know what to do with the property. No. And butchered it. And it's 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 sad that we'll never get the movie we were promised, you know? But we have something that's so close to it that you can't really complain. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Because like Barker's vision and we and uh uh we'll be able to talk about this. Barker's vision was so expansive mm-hmm. and a lot of that comes through. And if you actually read about what he intended, it would have been my uh <laughs> greatest film trilogy of all time like oh you want uh like the star wars of monster things it's all about like like these creature civilization and backstory (laughs) and folklore and mythology and uh, sign me up you can have all the money all the money is yours now clive barker i never even thought about it but like richard really hit it on the head with the uh the james whale because i'm thinking about the ending um that hill that they're standing on and just the way it's shot mm-hmm. there's such an old school hollywood feel and in such a baroque nature like he wasn't going for realism and i love it there's like this heightened yeah. uh fairy tale almost even lo- the look to midian itself and the monsters um yeah and it doesn't end with them reuniting like i mean we can we can talk more about this but like it ends with them in this picturesque moment thinking about the future for mm-hmm. the new Midian, and then it cuts to all the remaining entities talking about them <laughs> and the future, and it's, so it, it really calls like those yep. old like epic poem tales upon yeah. tales of the hero, where it's uh it's a way more about the mythos than just like they could have just come back and then set off and that would have been it. Yep. It's like no, this is about the folklore, man. Yep, oh, it's. It's such a crazy movie. I, I was actually thinking about, uh, when you brought up the James Whale comparison, uh, Richard, mm. I was thinking about uh, freaks more than anything. And uh, I, I, I really see a lot of freaks in this. And I can see Barker being attracted to something like that. Mm, totally. Yeah, the whole, like, I mean, at the most literal, making him one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then she gets Google gobbled at the end, yeah. And her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, it's so interesting. Uh, this, this is going to be a fun talk. Uh, so I was I was telling Andrew this, Richard, before uh, before we started recording, before you were on. This film came out when I was uh, four. I was four. And so I didn't see it for a lot later. It wasn't widely available when I was growing up in Eastern Washington. Uh, so I didn't really see it until maybe like early in undergrad when I was catching up in all these other films. And I saw the theatrical and I didn't like it. And because it was so uh, kind of haphazard, there was a lot of the story that didn't quite make sense. And it unnerved me because I really like Barker. I love Hellraiser. I love almost everything of his that I saw. And I love monster stuff, obviously. And so it never sat right with me like, oh, there's this Clive Barker thing about a city full of monsters and I don't like it. That didn't sit right with me. It's so weird. It's so because <laughs> it goes against all of my instincts. So when I watched the director's cut, it was uh, a lot more favorable for me because it, it's not necessarily. Uh, it, I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it does capture a lot of the grandeur. It ha- it makes a lot more sense. There's still little issues with scenes where, uh, like there's a there's a scene during a raid that we could talk about later um, where Boone takes a shotgun from one of the people during the raid and he turns to shoot someone and they fall before the sound effect goes off. And so there's like little issues, but overall it, I love 
I love the world building. I love the diversity. I love the sympathetic portrayal of these entities and the diversity and um, all of the actors are so committed mm-hmm. to, they're not just abstract monsters that look different, but they're all kind of weird. Like they're in fully individuated characters with different personalities. Some of them, yeah. some of them are aggressive and malevolent and just holding it in. Some of them are really, they look monstrous, but they're very innocent or they're very simple. Um, they're full characters. And I love that they are, you know, kind of given personhood in every single aspect of their design and the performance. Yes. Uh, and it has a really strong frantic energy to it as well, where it feels like a monstrous fever dream. And that's kind of great. So I give it ultimately uh, the director's cut, maybe a, a four out of five. It lands almost everywhere it needs to. I can still see some of the areas where I just wish they had like the ability to do like uh you know, show us the Barker cut, you know, yeah. Yeah. I wish they'd just been given money to do reshoots with the studio that, that cared for what they had. Mm-hmm. But overall, I think it's a solid film. Uh, I just love, like, it really captures for me what, why I love Barker so much, yes. which is that like all of his projects are, have such fully fleshed out worlds and, mm-hmm. With everything he does, it's like he's trying to make a new religion off it, and it's amazing. Um, it really has that. He also respects his characters and actors. I mean, you, you really look at Hellraiser, it's 80% of family soap opera with 20% skinless men and Cenobites. You know, you look at Candyman, and um, what, what Bernard Rose did with Candyman is he elevated the material, actually. But, like, Barker tends to infiltrate his stories and his worlds with we'll call them people for the sake of the word, you know, but like every creature, every place he takes you, even if he doesn't give you all the details, they feel 100% like places you could go, like things you should know about. And he does that by giving us people and giving us characters and Mm -hmm. giving us, we're not just here to be scared. We're here to care. We're here to um, go on a journey with Boone and with Lori. Like I was shocked at my last watch, how much I like Lori. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is usually a thankless role given, you know, the swooning uh, love interest. Uh, she's the anchor of this movie, in my opinion. She's fantastic. Yeah, she's really good. Uh, yeah, I, I noticed that too upon this this rewatch. That she she is really uh, does a lot in terms of, of, of moving the movie forward. But yeah, also, you know, anchoring us in that emotion. You believe her, her love for Boone and you also just believe her her journey that she goes on and i think that she gets to do you know a lot more than those type of roles typically allow i think that she's a little more hands-on yeah if you can ever compare and contrast the theatrical cut the one of the biggest biggest differences is they she is that cliche in the theatrical cut sure and then they they literally cut out almost all of her stuff what's so interesting to me because i i mean from our perspective, we've seen Midian fairly in depth, and we know that yeah, there's there's some entities there that are could be menacing, but it's actually a full civilization with with children and with kind creatures and with shy. It's it's just like everything under the sun. It's a full civilization. It's not it's not what we would think 
as this like den of evil, but she doesn't know that until she actually experiences it from her perspective. She's going into, for all she knows, the mouth of hell when she's searching for Boone. So her mm-hmm. character has a lot of bravery to it to do what she does. And it really comes out in the director's cut. She never backs down in any situation. She always goes forward. Like even when she comes across Babette, mm-hmm. you know, when she yeah. first encounters a monster and she's actively repulsed, but she can't look at something in pain, you know, and ignore it. Yeah, and she's suspicious too. She's not stupid, you know? Like no. she hears like weird sounds coming from the corner and she's like, well, this still needs my help. So if this is a trap, it's a trap, I guess. But she's not she's not it, ignorant of the fact that it could be a bad yeah. thing. And she's a freight train. And and I was really struck by uh I think the actress Ann Bobby is her name. She she really did a great job in this. And and I think nowadays, had this been made now, I think she would actually be the focus character. And I think uh Boone would almost be the MacGuffin, you know? Yeah, probably. I mean I I could see that that shift being made. Um I'm glad that she has such a positive reception from all of us because my plan at the end of the episode was for all of us to do an a cappella rendition of Johnny Get Angry. <laughs> <laughs> they do the whole song. <laughs> they do it the whole song twice and then at the end it's funny cuz they have all this awesome melodic music and all of a sudden Johnny Get Angry and I'm just like that's that's quite the tonal shift. <laughs> But it's I love that they stick it in there because that scene actually does so much heavy lifting in terms of her character. Because you watch her when the scene starts before Boone enters. And Boone is, he thinks he's on lithium, but he's actually been giving some unknown hallucinogenic. So it's just starting to Mm -hmm. kick in. And he promised her to go to this gig. He's never seen her sing before. And when the scene starts, you can see her scanning the crowd. She's looking. She's looking. And she's singing and she's giving it, and it's, it's, it's a good performance. But then as soon as she spots him, she comes to life. And like, we were sitting here kind of laughing because it's like the scene just keeps going. Like, you really do get like the full album. And, you get the director's uh, cut of that song. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's actually, it, it's not just, it, it serves complete purposes. You understand her feelings for him in their entirety in that moment, watching her come to life the second he's in the building, watching her her sink as he um as he leaves but then she just keeps going and she gives it even more her entire character is laid out in a scene which is in most movies would be cheesy and even in this one it's kind of cheesy but it, i think it works like a hundred percent it's so funny too because like just just for the audience at home so she sings this song by Joni <laughs> summers from 1962 called <laughs> johnny get angry and it's one they wouldn't make today because it's about a woman who wants to feel loved by her man like he cares. So she wants him to get angry and to lecture her. And she says, like, I want a brave man. I want a caveman. I, I assume she's being literal and, and the, the singer wants uh, someone that lives in a cave back before, <laughs> you know, like in the hunter gatherer days. I'm assuming this is a literal song. Like she's a, you know, anthropologist. Um <laughs> But uh, because Johnny, show me that you re- that you really care for me, and so it's it's so it's an interesting and intentional song choice where it's it's always about the the singer wants basically like an aggressive caveman to show her, like she wants someone to like ramp up and be aggressive about her to show her that she matters to him, which is fun fact perverse. But <laughs> well, I mean, her character. All in all, like as much as I like the performance, as much as she's a driving force, there's a lot of wrong 
with what they, her agency is entirely tied to Boone. Um, even down to the end, she can't just let him, you know, walk away. Yeah. Like it's, it's really, it, it almost feels like Stockholm syndrome at a certain point, but it, it's, it's strange. Cause I, I don't know. Cause as much as I like her performance that I really do. Um, and as I think she gives that role way more than it was probably on the page. Cause there's, there's some problematic shit. Her and her uh, female friend, the only like other human female in the in, in the movie, uh, all they do is talk about men. It's dated, but she manages to rise above that. And I think actually, I think she brought in a lot more um, and made mm-hmm. her, I think, more than what she is on the page. Because I, I genuinely was like, "Holy crap!" Lori kind of kicks some ass. Yeah. you know, and part of it is because it is an early 90s film, I feel like we're more willing to forgive certain aspects uh, than if it were made today. Exactly. Right. Like, and I, and I would say too, that like the, the song perverse as it is, like, isn't, isn't trying to, I would imagine it's, it's not trying to reinforce like her dependent agency, but more just to be almost on the nose with, it's a song about a woman wanting her man, a woman wanting her man to be a monster. Like her just, nice guy to become a monster to show her that he could be tough and that he that she matters. Turns out Boone isn't a serial killer <laughs> and actually is a nice pure spirit that gets turned into a monster. Yep. Yep. So it's actually just entirely on the nose. It's it's really on the nose. But I mean that's this I, I would never I don't think anyone, uh, fan or foe, could ever argue this movie's subtle and the story is subtle. Um and that's part of what I, I love about it is that it, it's willing to be just that open and accepting with its themes. Um, because at that point, like a lot of people would have been trying to hide some of the stuff that's in the film, um, like a little bit deeper. And Barker was just like, nah, nah, it's about acceptance, assholes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like all kinds. Just it's weirdly for as violent as the film is, for as grotesque as it can be at times, it's it's so strangely uplifting like it almost plays you could cut this down to like a pg-13 family film in some way and like the message would completely ring across because even that ending there's almost something spielbergian yeah. about it yeah that kind of goes back you know to what i was yeah. saying in my first impressions is that i feel like if i had seen this as a kid like it probably would have been my favorite movie because i feel like it is a film that you could show like a younger i mean not like as as your first introduction mm-hmm. to to horror, but I definitely feel like it's one of the the earlier ones that could could come along because it it does really have that that Spielberg feel and that sense of of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because fantasy is because it, it's it's interesting to me too because uh, I, I mean we talked about this a little bit, but uh, whether or not they would be considered persons, I guess you could say, um, mm-hmm. and I so. For me, it's interesting because typically when you talk about monsters, it's as something distinct from persons, unless we're talking about like a serial killer, we're like, that's a monster. But we also like mean that's a person who's being monstrous. Yes. We don't mean they're literally like a non-human thing. But the interesting thing is like, so human is our species and we are people. Like we have attributes of personhood, whatever that would be like, depending on who you talk to, like intelligence, a soul, civilization, whatever. We're humans who are people. Personhood is a thing that, like, humans are the only species we know that qualify for personhood in our common conception. Mm-hmm. But it's not 
because we're humans that were people like non-human things hypothetically can have personhood and all the monsters, all of the monsters in Nightbreed do, except for maybe the berserkers where it's kind of a question mark. Well, I would argue the only monsters in the movie are, are is man. Like the scariest thing in the movie is Cronenberg is Decker. He's, he's pure unmitigated evil and then you get to Midian and you go into the catacombs you descend those stairs and what you get are mothers who care for their children you get friends you get lovers you get scamps and rascals for sure but they with the exception of Peliquin um they and Peliquin's just you know he's a rabble rouser but uh, ultimately he respects Midian but uh they have laws right and they don't like to break them and even Peliquin is interesting because he he's willing to break uh and and for the uh folks at home who may not know the names we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more in a second but uh peliquin is of the first two monsters that that boone meets peliquin is the one that that bites him for those who have seen the movie and if if not i don't know why you're listening to a nightbreed episode without having ever seen the movie but the one with dreadlocks that's peliquin and he uh is known to break the rules a lot um but even still, he's not a pure predator in the sense that, um, you know, at the end of the day, he can be persuaded to, he's not evil, you know, like he can be persuaded to follow the rules. He doesn't no. inherently see a human and have to, you know, destroy them. You know, I, I thought of, uh, for just like a shorthand for a lot of people, I thought of uh, Mbatu from Black Panther, the, uh, the guy who ran the mountain. Oh, yeah. right. Like he's very much Mbaku, thank you. You know, when he comes down, like, he's rough around the edges, but you know what? He loves his home, and he loves his people, so he's going to do what he can for him. And he's honorable to his word 100% of the time. Exactly. No, because one of the things is he bites, and he's full intention of eating Boone against the law, yes. Because why not? It's a quick snack. But when Boone comes back as Nightbreed, he fully, he's just, he's there at his baptism, and he's like, hell yeah, dude, welcome to the party. Let's be monsters. You know what I mean? Like, it just immediately turns on him, and he even... Uh, when Lori descends, when she finds finds out about the Nightbreed uh, after Boone's death and, and his body disappears, um, you know, he at first is doing his menacing thing, but he backs off and just kind of lets her be for the rest of the film. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. I, I just like that, you know, really the only ones who, who don't blink or seem to have like empathy of any sort are the people in this film, mm-hmm. with the exception of like our, our two, our really only our two leads because even the priest who we think might be on everyone's side by the end of the film has changed and yeah he has his moments but that's why like i, I don't i almost don't like calling them like monsters they're just the night breed yeah you know yeah the uh, tribes tribes of the moon yeah yeah well let's um use that as a as a marker to get a little bit more to the general context so as we mentioned it's based off of the novella cabal but the story and the world was developed further in, as Richard mentioned, a series of comic books, all originating in this novella in, in Barker's Books of Blood. And the backstory is that there was this ambiguous, and, and maybe y'all know a little bit more about the mythology than me, this ambiguous entity named Bathame, uh, that was sort of taken by the Knights Templar and kind of relocated in a way and it eventually created Midian as this uh, safe 
haven community for all these monstrous entities. Uh, my read is that it's a little bit ambiguous if it created all of them or if it's just sheltering them, how exactly that works. Maybe you'll have more insight. Um, but Baphomet has mysterious origins and basically is this god for creatures that mm-hmm. is the protector of Midian. And then towards the end of both the novel and the film, it tasks Boone that that it renames him Cabal, ergo the title of the original novel, with finding a new safe haven for effectively creatures of the night, which are ultimately, which are also called the the tribe of the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, as distinct from the tribe of the sun, which would be humanity. So uh, the interesting thing about the Nightbreed is that as the, the nomenclature for their community or the type of broad thing they are, is that there's so much diversity in what they become and what they transform into and in their their nature and their traits. It's so interesting. But I wanted to, to ask both of you, because you're familiar with Cabal and Richard, you're familiar with the sort of the comics afterwards. How does the story develop kind of like like how is cabal different and how is how does the story kind of evolve they're structurally identical um you get a little bit more details because i just read cabal last night um and it's been a while since i read it It, it, the biggest differences with cabal are really almost the framing of boone and his psychosis because it never goes into what exactly he was seeing decker for but he has some serious anger issues, disassociative issues, but it, it doesn't go too deeply into them. And it deals a little bit more with his, because Decker, his psychiatrist, is a serial killer who has been slowly driving Boone even more insane and um, has been planting kind of like post, almost post-hypnotic suggestions into his head, feeding him details of the crime scene so he can set him up as a patsy. And then because Boone's been he's highly suggestive because he's been having these these nightmares or dreams of the dreams. That's not in it. Yeah, though, that's interesting. It's not in not Cabal. No, uh, he hears about Midian because he's been in and out of uh, Barker has a thing. It happens in the Book of the Arts, uh, the Great and Secret Show in Everville as well, um, where characters stumble across information because they actually pay attention to the insane. Mm. So he's been in and out of institutions and he has overheard the name Midian constantly um, from other uh, patients. Um, and he understands it as a place where you can go to be forgiven. Mm-hmm. And Boone, they, they distinctly, Barker distinctly says in the, in the novella that Boone's biggest thing is that he, he needs punishment for things, even if he didn't necessarily do anything so he really takes to heart that he is the serial killer because he thinks he deserves to go to jail go on death row to be you know destroyed because of this um regardless of not whether he did it it's just boone is is he's completely self-destructive and self-hating mm. and, uh but that's really the biggest difference i mean he he doesn't drop too much more in terms of lore like i, I don't know if it's expanded elsewhere like with the comics that's probably richard can yeah, I mean, um, the the comics. So, like the the first one in the the nineties, um, it ran from nineteen ninety to ninety three. The first part is just uh, it's an adaptation of of Barker's screenplay. Um, so it actually for for those who you know didn't get the director's cut at the time, it actually fills in a lot of the the gaps that were missing in the theatrical. Um, but then the following issues. Um, 
basically serve as a as a sequel mm -hmm. um and, and boone is, is searching for uh, a new home a new midian um and then encounters uh new monsters and this is kind of interesting because the night breed that we see uh in the film as we talked about you know they're mostly peaceful and they just want to live in, in harmony uh amongst themselves and not be bothered but the, the sequel comic introduces like a separate sect of night breed who want to prey on man uh basically um they kind of have this idea that they've been condemned to the shadows and hunted for so long uh that it's time for them to kind of rise up so it's kind of an interesting uh I guess, uh, play on some of the, the X-Men mythos. Mm -hmm. Essentially, you have Boone and his Nightbreed kind of serving as like the X-Men. Um, and then there's this new group that are kind of like the, the Brotherhood. The Brotherhood of Evil um, Monsters. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, and so um, Boone kind of hung a little bit between kind of serving as a messiah for these two entities. And then uh, eventually, like, other, some of Barker's other characters get, like, roped into it, too. Um, like, Rawhead Rex yes. shows up in the series, and then there was, like, a spinoff series that saw a crossover with, with uh, Hellraiser and the, and the Cenobites. Um, and that was interesting. And, and Ashbury shows up, and he's kind of using them to wipe out the, the Nightbreed. Interesting. Uh, that's, yeah. I, I would have loved to see, like, Harry Dumour, who is, uh, for those who know Barker through the movies, he's the main character Scott Bakula plays in Lord of Illusions. He shows up in, um, actually, the Scarlet Gospels, which is Barker's official sequel to Hellbound Heart. Um, he's in Everville, I think, which is the second book of the art. He's a paranormal private detective who gets caught up in this stuff. I always wanted, like, a Nightbreed crossover with Harry Dumour. He's one of Barker's, like, great characters. I find there's a funny thing that goes on with people who know Barker is they primarily know Barker through his films. Not as many people who know Barker as like, because people think of him as a horror author and he dabbles in horror. Yes. But I've always thought of him more as like a dark fantasy author. So it's always interesting when you get into like his, his kind of broader work, it tends not to be what you think it is. Like he can fill it with the most grotesque imagery. Yes. But like, he's telling often like these huge dark fantasy things and Nightbreed, I think started because Barker got into comics for a while. And actually, the uh, the Wachowskis started writing in a Barker comic called Ecto Kid. I really do think with your X Men, apparently, yeah, it's it's this was X Men ten years before X Men came out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's super interesting. But yeah, I think that um, yeah, what you're saying about the, the the fantasy aspect is is really true as well. Because I mean, my introduction to Barker was um, a young adult book that he wrote called The Thief of Always. I and it really freaked me out as a kid. Uh, <laughs> and this was before I even knew, you know, anything about uh, uh, Hellraiser or, or Nightbreed or Candyman or any of that. That was really my my introduction. Um, so yeah, so just kind of going from that to like seeing his his filmography was really interesting because I've always kind of associated his his writing with the the more fantastical aspects he is really creating uh, myths here they're kind of you know dark fairy tales and so i think you know to go back to to an earlier point where we were talking a little bit about how nightbreed doesn't subtle at all um that really reminds me of like the fairy tale influences in a lot of barker's work right they're they're trying to teach us a, a lesson or yes. give us a, a moral these are truly grim fairy tales like it's a. Uh, I think of him almost because um, my introduction was through Hellraiser and then Candyman, and so I knew him as a horror entity. So when I actually sat down and started reading the books, I was like, "Holy shit, this guy doesn't do horror, but he he can throw out some incredible imagery. Like they're they're almost always horror adjacent. 
You know, it's kind of like where 90s Stephen King went a little bit more fantasy and science fiction, and now he's more of a detective story guy. Like, well, and then like in cinema, other than other than Barker's adaptations, it's also kind of uh, like like Del Toro's works, where they're not all horror, right? Yeah. I actually think of him as like a gnarlier Del Toro in a lot of ways. They sh- they both share this kind of whimsical love of for me anyway, like fairy tales and fantasy and their love of their creations and of the denizens of, uh, let's say, Midian, you know, he loves the Nightbreed because all of them have names. All of them had backstories. Like, even if they never spoke a word in the movie, he wanted Mm -hmm. to know who they were and and what they, and he let the actors kind of work on that. And he leaves, because he's a painter too, like Barker's, one of those ridiculous people who seems to just do it all. Uh, if I found out he played guitar really well, I'd be really like very <laughs> upset. Like he just does everything. But even his artwork, what he does is he paints because his, his his he's a wordsmith. Unlike a lot of uh, contemporary horror authors, he's just insanely fantastic how he he uses language and manipulates language. And uh, I think of his paintings a lot of and his drawings in the way that he sketches them they're very much silhouetted they're open they're almost ink blot like and he Mm -hmm. allows even though he paints us this gorgeous picture he lets us fill in the details with he gets our imaginations kickstarting and he just lets you go for it because you look into midian and i was really watching this this go through it's like I, i wanted more of the graveyard like i wanted to just wander in mm-hmm. it. I, I wanted to take a left where Laurie took a right. It's very strange for as big as this film is, and its budget is well used, but this is a much bigger scope than I... This movie was made for $11 million, which even back then was okay, not quite what it needed. And it sucks because the set work is incredible, but I, I found it very strange that Barker doesn't allow us to really see it. Like, Baphomet's antechamber is... There's no big sweeping wide shots. It's like every time I want Nightbreed to go big, it doesn't. And I don't know if that was budgetary constraint. It almost does in a couple times during when they're actually going through the catacombs of Midian, where Mm -hmm. you can see the underground section with all the the, the walkways that are kind of reminiscent of of the five seconds of the Hobbit movies that I liked. (laughs) Um, But then it immediately cuts to the like the close-ups of of whatever they turned into, and you don't really get to explore very much. Through reading his work, even with something like let's say Weave World or Magica, even the Quiddity, the Dream Sea of the books of the art, Barker is very much more interested in machinations, and he's interested in people, and he's interested in atmosphere than he is in actually expanding the world. Like he keeps, he's very hyper focused on the tangible touchable denizens but the world itself he often leaves abstract enough for us to infer our own you know um, ideas onto it but as Mm -hmm. a filmmaker like that doesn't quite work because i personally want to be taken by the hand on a journey by someone who wants to show me something what's your what's your take uh I'm kind of interested in what Richard's take is on this because I know Richard, you're very well versed in uh, in Barker as well. Kind of, what do you feel? Yeah, I definitely think that, like as an artist, he is someone who wants people to fill in the gaps, and I think that that's, that's true of of his paintings and his, and his writing. You know, I think a lot about um, Candyman 
uh, in particular in the, the short story, The Forbidden, and the way that, that Candyman is described in that, um, you know, and it, it's very different from mm-hmm. uh, Bernard Rose's film, but you just kind of get like a shade of, of the character of a monster. It, it's interesting because sometimes the way that he describes mm-hmm. things, it's almost like a puzzle. Like you can kind of see some of the pieces, but it's not all there and you can't really figure out like how this would exactly look. Because I feel like he's not basing his designs so much so on the type of imagery that we've seen before. And I feel like that really is apparent in Nightbreed in the way that the the monsters are designed. Like even though in terms of the mythology of the film, they're talking about how all the different breeds have stemmed Mm -hmm. from folklore and creatures that Mm -hmm. humans are, are familiar with. But they don't look like anything that we kind of have come to expect from monster movies or from uh literature um so i think that that that's a really interesting aspect but i also think in terms of him not wanting to fully showcase uh this world i just i think that barker is someone who kind of likes to have uh a few a few secrets like a few hidden caverns um you know I, i think that he he gives you something to uh, like a, a trail to follow and, yes. to, and to think about, but he doesn't want to show you the whole thing. I think like he's more interested in you kind of just finding your own your own trail and kind of making up your own uh, history and backstory. So it's almost like he's inviting the the reader or, or in this case the viewer to kind of take part in the in the shaping of his art, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that because I, I think. I mean, Barker is obviously well versed in in a lot of folklore and also in historical horror literature, and it calls to mind to me a little bit like the classic cosmic horror trope of I'm going to talk around yeah. this entity or this location because I want to engage your imagination instead of simply cookie cutter give you a flat picture. Oh, absolutely. He also, I think, falls in love with, like, a, like when you go back to the Hellbound Heart, if I'm remembering it correctly, he really only describes Pinhead in any kind of detail. Um, the rest of the Cenobites are just, you know, vaguely described. And then you go, you read Rawhead Rex, and I know everything about Rawhead Rex's anatomy because he wanted me to know about it. He's, I think he, he uses hyper details when he wants us to really be shocked and freaked out because he has like a, a central image because his painting inspires his writing inspires the film you know like it's almost all so he approaches he approaches writing as a painter and he approaches filmmaking as a writer and that's why i think he's but he's also very smart in which the people he surrounds himself in terms of the artisans that are with him and the makeup people because he would uh, watching the documentary yeah, sure. nightbreed last night a guy still had a, an original sketch, and um, I can't remember his name. The uh, the priest who gets um, Ashbury, who gets changed by um, Baphomet, uh, he shows the sketch, and you can kind of see Ashbury only because we know what the finished product looked like. But it, it, he's, he builds this wonderful base. It's just I know as like a film viewer, especially something where you're inviting me into this world, that doesn't quite work for me personally. As much as, like, because Midian's such a magical place, I, I want to go there. You know, give me more of it. And once again, I don't know if it was a budgetary thing. 
because the makeup is there's so many practical effects well yeah that's one thing that i kind of wanted to to mention that i i really do love about nightbreed i would love to see more of of the totality of the world the glimpses that we get are interesting i have a lot of questions but i do love their commitment to the practical Mm -hmm. uh the the actual makeup the costumery are all very well developed and nuanced and there's certainly some questions that I have. Uh, for example, I <laughs> I mentioned earlier the Berserkers. Mm-hmm. What the hell is up with that plot device? <laughs> um, because all these creatures have such individual, like individuated essences and personalities, like I mentioned, and they look so different. And then you have this weird doorway of all of these. And, and also not even all of the Nightbreed have what we would call powers certainly not offensive ones right like they're not all strong they don't all have you know poison quills or what have you uh but but then you have this like door for no reason of these all look the same (laughs) massive hulking monstrosities that have just been ready to massacre shit like like they've been waiting for who knows how long i kept thinking of like raiders fans Mutated Raiders fans just locked up and like ill-fed. Yeah, it's yeah. I don't know because, I, but I mean, Richard mentioned the um. There's the kind of quote-unquote bad night breed, the more bloodthirsty. So you have to imagine that because these are, as often shown, you know, this is the weaker tribe of the moon. These are the benevolent, so they don't have enough warriors amongst them. That it would probably be a smart idea to have, maybe even because I would imagine within their species, there's let's say more animalistic versions that they, they keep for these particular purposes, you know, to me, that made sense. It's just, that's just defense. That's smart. Yeah. Cause, cause it seemed to me more like not even that they were weaker per se, but that they were culturally more pacifistic. Yes. That's like, for some reason, the way their, their nightbreed civilization evolved they locked away the more aggressive variants they had and decided to hide and and survive that way. And the way that they got out of the limitations that imposed was to be like, hey, um, guys, so for the for the, the listeners at home, what happens is that after Dr. Decker kind of starts to point the authorities towards this civilization of creatures, he starts to they, they all start to <laughs> gather Basically, the towns also rans like the the shitty cops, mm-hmm. the weird rednecks that are just looking for something to shoot. Mm-hmm. Like it's literally like the storming of the capital. It's literally those people. They're gathering, yeah. But instead of the capital, they storm the capital of monsters. Yeah. And uh, and so I'm fifty fifty if I'm going to edit this out or not. But I was telling Andrew Richard last night <laughs> that it was literally like Trump supporters versus monsters at the end. <laughs> Yeah. It's literally those guys. <laughs> and yeah. It carries with it such a different weight now. Well, and so it, the the thing that's um really funny to me is is so Boone is gathering all these entities. You know, they're all afraid because they're like we've been pacifistic and we've been told all these stories of how the humans have massacred our kind and what are we going to do? And he basically shows up like um Guys, uh, we're creatures of the night and have abilities and can fuck shit up. I don't know if you know this, but we super can. 
Yeah. And and so then they like gather together, but it was so funny moment where it's like almost like they'd been pacifistic so long they didn't know their own abilities. Well, I I think it's because I I researched Baphomet because I you know I know the name and I know the symbol I'd seen it but I didn't really know and and Baphomet was actually a a deity that was given to the Templars as almost like a smear and as an excuse mm. to wipe them out during the Inquis the the Templar Inquisition. So I think it's you know you go back to the Templar I mean that was what like thirteen hundreds somewhere around there. And then here we are in 1990, and, and they escaped to the New World and established Midian as a, as, as a place to hide. And um, I mean, that's mm-hmm. like, what, 700 years, 600 years without, you know, conflict. And one of the things I kind of loved was that the town, and this is one of those things that we we're talking about scope and what would have been kind of fun if they could have done it is the compare and contrast of the town that lies right outside of Midian. And how a bunch of them seem to be aware that, yeah, that place is spooky and weird. We don't go there. You know, everybody knows the rumors, but nobody wants to actually. Yeah, like there's a, what was he at, a gas station, that gentleman? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where he was like, oh, yeah, no, there's totally this this like, yeah. civilization of monsters. Like, how do you know so much? Uh, I really wanted to join the mm-hmm. frat, but they wouldn't have me after the hazing. Like. Yeah, <laughs> he really wanted. To, so I wonder if the whole town is full of people that maybe they raided because they're just pissed. Yeah, I didn't make the team because <laughs> it's it's uh. It, but I, I would have loved to pull out and maybe investigate the town a little bit more because it feels strangely like a missed opportunity that you have what we can suspect are at least before everything happens at the end a few hundred monsters, maybe even like a hundred monsters, and you have this gigantic gothic baroque like cemetery built i would have mm-hmm. loved to have seen the people you know and get into what they think is out there maybe like upon building it like it's because i keep thinking about this is potentially going to turn into a uh, television show and i i keep thinking that the journey that that television show with the pacing and, and really building it up because i just i want more nightbreed is what i'm saying like i want more in like every possible way and and yeah like i want i want to see season two of the television show like because the first one is probably going to retread a little bit familiar territory and i will love it i look forward to it yes but season two is probably where they like and on is where they're going to get in all the weird stuff because he's he's done that all the weird stuff that magical thing that i guess if you're an author you know like a fiction author or a, a filmmaker um where you give us a world and then you set our imaginations on fire. And that's really what Nightbreed does. Like when he does, I'm a sucker, which I'm sure you guys are too, of kind of the eighties when they did the big goopy latex monster movies of the, the montage of all the different monsters. When you look at something like basket case two, when she's introducing him to all the, uh, the people in the, the attic or society at the end. Like I, and I love that we get that in the director's cut. Because they actually cut a lot of the monsters out of the theatrical cut. Like, tons of them. So it's yeah. like, we have all these new monsters. And I love that this movie just gives us... It's I think of them as like the, the Romero zombie munching scenes. That he has to give us like that wonderful... Oh, I, I, I hate when they add new monsters. I definitely... <laughs> right? Like, uh, it's awful. I'm not interested in that at all. Why I'm like, if there monsters? are monsters in a movie, I turn it off. But this... Because it's really hard to watch the theatrical. God, what did my podcast become? How did this happen? No, I love it. I absolutely love. I'm like, like, no, seriously. I want to see the moon faced one. Mm-hmm. I want to see what's that guy do. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just so much creativity 
And then you even get that one at the end, which I completely forget about. The special effect isn't wonderful, but it's like that flying one that separates yeah. itself into multiple parts and like cuts through somebody and just reassembles itself. Yeah, it kind of looks at some angles like it's a floating shark. Yeah, it's, and we never see it again. With, like a There's hybrid no of like of a floating thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like a hybrid of like a, it's like a floating shark and like um like a like a modern drone had a baby <laughs> and it just like eats its way through this whole i'm like why are you ever on the run yeah just breed those and like send them out <laughs> to destroy the rednecks like like you know what, what do you think richard i uh, i i love the guy who looks like a, a thanksgiving turkey <laughs> i i, I want to know his whole deal his whole story i would i would do like a, a comic series just about him 100 <laughs> percent. no there's like my favorite i love uh okay so like the, there was the one with the um the massive stomach and the eye stalks that come out yeah <laughs> yeah is, i i have his name written down and i was watching that with katie and she was like hey did this inspire all real monsters at all oh his name is like, leroy gum <laughs> leroy gum leroy i was gum. like has so many questions. It's amazing because he had these eye stalks with like claws and eyes in them, and they take eyes. <laughs> like, what the hell, man? I I love um yeah because like the moon face guy, Pelico- but I I'm a sucker, and I know everybody's gonna be like your favorite one. It's it's got to be uh uh Shona Sasi, the porcupine lady. Is, She's so cool. Oh, yeah, such. She's awesome. It's a beautiful design too. It is. It's, no, it's, she leaves such a strong impression. Mm-hmm. In the in the comics, um, there's actually like a love triangle that develops between her and Boone and Lori, which is which is really interesting because I feel like yeah, there's just something that's like so like fascinating and attractive about that design that you just like kind of want to use her more. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so well, yeah, I, yeah, like she's definitely one of the, the performance too because I think she's a dancer. Well, she moves so chaotically even from the beginning, you know, like. Uh, because in that interesting dream mm-hmm. montage, right, I where like that. all of a sudden there's nothing, and then there's like you're flooded with these really frantic entities, and she's heavily featured, yeah. Because like there's so much frantic energy and almost like a serpentine movement that she has, and when she actually gets to go into action later with her poison quills and stuff, yes, it's weird because she's both very inhuman and weirdly sexy strangely erotic yeah yeah no because that's 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 barker's like niche is that kind of strange i don't i don't know like the way he brings like eroticism and sex into the grotesque and um or into the bizarre i won't always say grotesque but like the bizarre because i mean you look at the cenobites themselves they're dressed as uh i know a lot of people who are into snm who got their original ideas from the outfits well, yeah, because for <laughs> you know, from Hellraiser, because the, the fascinating thing about Cenobites is like, the, yes, they uh, they do painful things, mm-hmm. but for them, pain and pleasure are intertwined. So it's not, and that's what their whole philosophy is built around. So it's not like they're inducing just unpleasant but, suffering; it's sexualized. Oh, oh, compl- almost everything he does. I mean, you look at the way that you open up the box from Hellraiser, and. You ascribe that that motion to a lot of different things, and then what comes out is misery and, and, and pain. But like Barker constantly has this nice mixture of like eroticism and, and, and kind of bizarre or, or, or grotesque situations, and she's just like the epitome of it because 
honestly, her design has been homaged and ripped off in almost every medium since release. Like, in some way, shape, or... Like, I think of a lot of Mass Effect's designs. Yeah. And I think of her, you know? And, uh... I even think, um, uh... Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan, uh, oh, the transformation... God. Mm-hmm. It, it reminded me a bit of that too. Totally. It's, yeah, it's. I wasn't thinking that, but I can absolutely see that. She's a, a magnificent fi- that chaotic dream sequence. I, I, I don't know if anybody's going to get this reference. So feel free to cut it out if no one remembers it. I just kept thinking this is like the most bitchin' episode of Zubilee Zoo I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, nobody remembers Zubilee Zoo. Go Google it. <laughs> we're not. We're not in that universe. You're looking for the Berenstain Bears universe. No, but it, it's no, but I, I love that. I love that opening. Just opening with that because they're monsters everywhere. Yes, but they're not. They're not being threatening. Like it's it's almost like a it's a dance. And well, yeah, like they don't even allow themselves out of the, mm. the like they're they're not even going out into the world to pray. Like they're going back into their community. They're celebrating the moon, and 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 it's like and the, themselves underneath it and they're inviting Boone in and they're inviting us, the audience in. And it, it's such a wonderful, like that's how you open a monster movie. Cause I'm intrigued. Like, should I be afraid or do I want to go there and hang out? Like, yeah. I'd have to say that like to Richard, um, one of the things that you, you mentioned at the beginning in your initial impressions, I, I thought was very insightful because I, I'm a big fan of the universal monster films. You know, my, my my first monster centric episode of this podcast was on Creature from the Black Lagoon. I love many of them, mm-hmm. and Frankenstein and the Wolfman have always really stuck with me because both of them are emotive and tragic, you know, for different reasons. But they're yeah. they're humanizing these entities that we don't really understand. But they're uh, especially in Frankenstein, He's treated like the monster, but the monster, Frankenstein's monster is not the villain. And that absolutely is how all of these creatures are engaged with in the film. Like, the, even in the backstory, there's just like, yeah, we were just being ourselves. And humanity decided to try and, you know, genocidally eradicate us. So now we're hiding out and afraid for our lives all the time. And you don't expect that from a creature feature. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I think that there's a sense of empathy that that really goes into how Barker uh, explores these creatures. And I do think, yeah, that goes back to the Universal Universal Monster movies, um, which, yeah, I think, you know, and those were those were the earliest horror movies that I saw. Mm-hmm. And so as someone who has always loved monsters um, and the idea of them, I've always just been fascinated by, you know, you know, for, for me, my interest in monsters has always been the fascination with their character, their characterizations and like their designs, but it's also always been uh, comparing them to humans. And I think that humans really are, you know, the, the scariest monsters of mm-hmm. all. And I, I feel like that, that really hit home with me from an early age. And I think that's part of why Nightbreed uh, appeals to me so much is because you see, you know, it, it really is man that is, is the greatest monster. And yeah, I was struck, you know, just to go back, a little bit, you know, how we were talking about um, the events of, of January 6th and the, the mob that attacks Midian. I was also, you know, really struck this time um, by the the murder of Onaka uh, mm. by the cops. This movie, you know, I, I feel like that's such a, it's such a tragic and, and powerful moment because I think that, you know, Onaka is really like the the most innocent of all the nightbreed right. that we see. I mean, he has that dog 
You don't even really see that he has any offensive capabilities. He doesn't seem to, no. And most of the time that we do see him on screen, he's uh, cowering or hiding or just trying to be small so that these things pass by him. Yes. Yeah. And so, he's like no predatory. Uh, yeah. His, his murder, you know, this time around um, and just like all the, the, the cops just standing there and letting him die. It, it really hit me uh, this time in a way that it yeah. hadn't before. Wait, Cause like all the, the, the sort of the, the redneck apocalypse attack, right. Is gleeful. Yeah. You know, yeah. like they are watching him die and enjoying it. Yep. And even the, uh, the, the one officer, you can kind of see on the facial performance that he's a little suspicious of the gleefulness of the, the, the massacre, but he takes a step back instead of helping. Yeah. And, and in that moment of cowardice, that's what, you know, basically creates a unified picture of like, no, like, honestly, even the best of them, they're all part of this weird genocide. There's no good member of their, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the tribe of the sun. It's really like, it's, it's Nightbreed's version of ACAB <laughs> in some ways. Seriously. It's it's hard not to ascribe this movie at all. It's, it's very prescient. And I think that's kind of the genius of what Barker did is the breed, it, the tribes of the moon can be any marginalized group, you know? It's there's no limitation on, let's say, gender or racial differences, you know, just a tribe of the moon is a tribe of the moon. If you're one of the night breed, you're one of us regardless. And it's wonderful to see that because the movies plays so goddamn different since January 6th and since the rise of the red hat. It was really weird to watch the last third of this movie and think this was only 30 years ago that they made this. Yeah, I didn't really expect that at all when I was was rewatching it. Um, because I didn't remember it having any political undertones, but it's so obvious the general types of things. Yes. It's 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 that informant's perspective that's trying to say. Um, I feel I feel like we're getting into not kind of organically getting into deep dive territory. So, um, Richard, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about if there are any particular themes we we touched on this a little bit, but any like themes or meanings that really hit home for you about the film. Yeah, well, kind of just going off of the, the conversation that we were just talking about, um, you know, in terms of, of man being the monster, I think that there's some really interesting stuff happening in this film with religion um, and how Christianity is really, you know, turned into something that's very perverse and used like as an excuse to hunt down and kill people who are different. Um, you know, it's the it's the literal reading of of the Bible that really sends. Uh, I forget the the main cop's name, um, the guy with the glasses and the yeah. mustache. I buy that for a dollar, guy. He looks just like <laughs> that guy from Robo. Yeah, I wrote down like all the monsters, but I did not write the men. <laughs> <laughs> I have the same problem. No, um, like this is not a man. This is not a human yeah. podcast. Why would I need to know the humans' names? It's, uh, uh, Igerman, I think. Yeah, Captain Igerman. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know that scene where he's having Ashbury read him the passage from the Bible. And it's just like it's almost it's just like giving him more motive. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm backed by Christian faith and by this holy book. Uh, and I think it's really interesting, also like in contrast to how all of the night breeds are, are, are backed by their own their own religion um Mm -hmm. with baphomet and what's interesting to me is that you know even though the humans that that attack midian 
they're very much backed by this literal interpretation of the Bible. Uh, I think, you know, when you get into Christianity, I feel like the Nightbreed really represented more. And I mean, even even Boone, you can look mm-hmm. at this almost like this uh, a Moses. Figure. He's a Christ figure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, in terms of Judeo-Christianity, he's either Moses or Christ, right? He's, he's fulfilling this world. Right. Yeah, yeah, like it's literally like finding the promised land is literally Moses's ark, you know. Yeah. Like that's the Moses thing. He dies and comes back stronger, you know, elevated. Well, and then another, uh, it, it's it's interesting because you know we just released uh, an episode on uh, angels, and and one of the things that came out in our discussion is that you know people think of Christianity as this pacifist this religion that preaches pacifism but historically it preaches pacifism to people that are oppressed like hey don't rise up against authorities and what have you but historically a lot of the the reason we have the specific configuration of books that are canonical and the specific interpretations and territorial dominance in certain parts of the world is because it's spread largely by murder yeah and so it hasn't been historically super pacifistic like so bathomet is is you know related to an ancient deity that's that's kind of ambiguous in folklore but that historically is associated with paganism with all these sort of pagan tribes that throughout europe were massacred Uh yeah it's uh it's because he would be hitting it from a because what we need to, to keep in mind with Barker, too, is he is English. So, like, we tend to think of a lot of the mythologies that I think we deal with, specifically with monsters, yes, are borrowed from European folklore. But we've mixed a lot of our stuff with uh, indigenous people's folklore as well. So there's we have, like, a weird hodgepodge, if you, if you look at, like, American monster mythology, of, like, we brought over Germanic things, and then we, we took from the Algonquins, and, and we... We, we did this and we did this and there's there's like a very strange hodgepodge here but he he tends to bring like a very eurocentric always but he he likes he likes to tilt it on its head because even if you look at like the cenobites they're almost like the aristocrats of hell you know there's just these like formal things and well it's not really like even standard hell because it's not like oh no. and at the head of it is it leaves it kind of at least my reading tell me if if y'all know more than me and i'm an idiot uh mm-hmm. My reading is that it leaves open the question if specifically Cenobites are demons or not. They certainly, like, they're largely in, incorporated humans. They're not fallen angels. Yeah, I think what is P- Pinhead says, it's it's demons to some, angels to others. Exactly. Yeah. So that's always been, yeah, a super interesting uh, reading on, yeah, b- b- right. kind of conception of, of Christianity. Right. And then, like, like it's not a fallen angel at the head of of the world that they come from it's the leviathan this like eldritch thing that's not like any picture we have <laughs> a noble contraption like, yeah like what shape. is leviathan but i think if you take his, his more european roots his, his his more english roots um i i looked at nightbreed as if we're going to take it way back, it feels very like, uh, uh, like the Romani, the, uh, I know gypsy's a frowned upon word, but I don't know what else 
to use. I think Roma is, is often acceptable. Is that okay? I believe so. Okay, yeah. That's just me not knowing. But I, I, I looked at them as a lot like that. And then, you know, but then you, you look at where it's placed and you think of Canada and it's Canadian. Canada doesn't have the best history of with its uh, First Nations, uh, much like America does. And it's, it's so layered um, in terms of how many different groups, um, no matter what, across like a political spectrum, across a sexual spectrum, across a, a gender spectrum, just, you know, everything like it, he's, he's wonderfully well-read and he's wonderfully layered. So you, there's almost everything is here. And then I, I was just really, what is it with rednecks? Like, why do they have to storm everything? Like, cause it's January 6th threw me off. I, I was not expecting it with this movie, despite knowing how the third act is essentially just this horrible raid by a bunch of slack jawed, you know, yokels. And it's, Holy crap, I just watched this happen. The man's a genius, and, and especially when it comes to allegory and, and what we said earlier where, where you can allow, he allows you to fill in your blanks. He's, he's quite wonderful when it comes to interpretations because he layers it all in there, and it's not just accidental stuff either. It's, he's, he's smart with what he does. What yeah, he like I, I really love the um, – I also love the, the religious inversions in Barker's work. I, I mean you have it here where it leaves it a little up in the air what ex- – what exactly Bathomet is. He's, he's the, the god of the night breed, but we don't know if it's a god, the god. We almost have nothing about him. Yeah. Yeah. And so it leaves it kind of up in the air, but it's so interesting to me that like all of the, all of his creations, either like in the case of Rawhead Rex, maybe an actual god, deity of some kind. Leviathan mm-hmm. is some sort of deity in its realm. The Bathomet, we just understand that's worshipped as a god and it has some sort of power. And so it's almost this interesting religious inversion of, I don't know, we don't have a lot of evidence that standard religions have a lot of play, but we do have a lot of evidence that there are deeper and older and more frightening powers than we understand. And they have their own realms. And sometimes they come into ours and sometimes they find us, and sometimes we're fucked. But the only real representation of Christianity in the film is a doomsday priest who's a drunk who's lost his way and has had like some sort of mental snap at some point. Because um, they don't expressly go into it, which is I thought was kind of refreshing. So we, because Barker doesn't frame this as a battle of, of Christianity versus anything. No. This is just you know like our our only representation of the standard Judeo Christian God is a perverted bastardized version of it through a guy who doesn't even have faith in it anymore, well and then you know the, the interesting thing too is like <laughs> even still they kind of when when the the folks are raiding uh midian the the priest like takes is a, actually tells them to stop like wait this is holy ground like we shouldn't yeah. be doing this and they knock the bible on the floor like it's not really about yeah. that no in this instance no but because i mean he goes down to what Baphomet and that's when the change happens one thing that I I, I'm interested in and Richard I think you can speak to this because I I was able to find some of the comics last night but I wasn't able to actually dig in my understanding is that when they incorporate the Cenomites and the Nightbreed into the same sort of universe in the in the subsequent material that they kind of highlight the Cenobites as this force of order that wage war against the Nightbreed as a sort of representative of chaos. Is that, is that accurate? 
Yeah, that's accurate. Um, and like the the miniseries is actually like titled Jihad. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's got that extra, you know, layer of, of religion yeah. uh, there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it's it's basically, and the and the Cenobites are you know used as a more, um, I guess they're they're more akin to priests uh, in this in this comic. Uh, so I think again, it goes back to kind of this idea of the the knights templar uh and baphomet so it's 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 a really interesting uh as you as you said earlier like inversion of some of the you know religion that we're i guess familiar with yeah i i uh, i think it's interesting to think of the uh of baphomet and the nightbreed as sort of agents of chaos per se I mean, they don't at face value necessarily seem so in the sense that they're not anarchic. You know, they have their own civilization and order and role in the world. But it almost implies that they're a sort of perversion of the things as they are. Well, I, yeah, because, I mean, they, they refer to us as naturals. Right, right. Am I correct in that? Yes. Which implies that they are unnatural. And yeah, I, this is what it this is when the little fireworks start working in those dark parts of my brain and i'm like oh i i I love this world so much and what it means because i think you brought it up earlier that these aren't traditional representations these aren't the archetypes of the monsters we know and the boogeymen we're typically afraid of yeah like down there that in midian like there are no there are no werewolves there are no vampires that we see there's no like there's no mothman you know but it, it hints for me, that's so much better because it, it hints that the world of Nightbreed is so much more bizarre than you could ever imagine. Wait, because like it's it's interesting because they they have this uh, statue, and and either one of you are free to correct me if my interpretation is different from yours. But they have the statue of Bothamet uh, that has that Bothamet. It doesn't seem to be Bothamet, but it seems to be uh, almost like an avatar that Bothamet can inhabit and act through. But then when Midian is raided, Bothamet tells uh, Cabal to to find find Bothamet and and protect it from its enemies and find a new home for the Nightbreed. And so with the revelation that there's other communities, what it implies that Bothamet is somewhere else. And it implies that with these other communities that we find out in subsequent material, we don't really know how many different areas for the Nightbreed there are and water where Bothamet actually is. Is that correct? Yeah. Because it's, they're shapeshifters. And uh, I always got the sense that it's almost kind of like how uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer's vampires work in that there's something almost inhabiting, like because there's that mist. Remember when um, Boone shifts, Mm -hmm. you know, that mist comes out. It's almost like he has to like, reform and and, and uh, like there's something inside so my interpret I, I thought baphomet yeah it was like a statue it inhabited but like almost think of it as like a living statue mm-hmm. and it's in essence it is baphomet so for it to so because baphomet transfers itself into boone making him cabal mm-hmm. or at least it's power right so uh, i thought baphomet was maybe like a there's like a it's think of it like a source and like a spring somewhere and this is just one of the many little channels where it trickles through. Yeah, kind of like a, like almost like an avatar of Vishnu where Vishnu inhabits but it's separate from yes. the ultimate entity of power that that is doing the inhabiting. But you don't want to lose what the spring what it, what it makes, what it produces. So it's like it, it needs to inhabit something. 
which could have unto itself like Barker has said Star Wars. I think Richard said Star Wars. I always think more Dune with this. There's so many like Dune vibes I get with this, with like the Nightbreed almost being Fremen and uh, the Spirit of Baphomet being Spice. And this time, just the Harkonnens don't know about the Spice yet. Uh, you have, you know, it is also like the archetypical, you know, a man adopted by new society, which makes him one of his own, and he rises up and is the chosen one. And but it's I. A lot of Dune parallels. Yeah, I can this. definitely, I can definitely see that that as well. Especially like yeah. when you get into some of the the religious comparisons as well. Uh huh. Because I want to know more. It's because Barker usually does a pretty good job of. You read something like a Magica or Weave World, and they're they're gigantic novels. His books of art uh, of the art aren't completed yet, but Everville and the Great and Secret Show are gigantic, and they're they're lush. And then you get things like Galilee. You get um, something like uh, Cabal or Nightbreed. And what he does, it almost feels like he he starts the first part of a journey that he never has any intention of revisiting. So he he feels a lot like, um, like I think Barker, let's say 20 years from now, I think you're going to see a lot of people who still play in Barker's sandbox the way that people played and still play in, in Lovecraft's. Because he, 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 gives, he gives us the keys, he opens the door, he lets us take a look, and then he, you guys have fun with this. That's that's kind of like the magic of it, because I always think that's that's the power of, of an imagination is when you can not just project your imagination onto us, but then get us to project our imaginations out into the world inspired by your own work. And Nightbreed is like that for me because it's you start getting into Baphomet, the uh, the Knights Templar, the other Nightbreed cults, uh, not cults, but uh, tribes that are out there, like. How big does this go? How deep does this go? How else can it intersect? Yeah, that's the kind of stuff yeah. that I'm hoping that the show really takes time to to explore, really like going into that deeper world. You know, I, I'd love it if only like the first handful of episodes, you know, were a retread of, of Cabal and then the rest was just mm-hmm. this journey for uh, a new a new home or a new meteor, or even if it just like picked up. Uh, after the movie and didn't even do a a, a, a recap of, of what had happened there. That would be really interesting because I feel like, yeah, it's such an expansive world. And then again, like, I think it's so interesting that the film is set in, in North America and yet, like, there's so clearly, like, these ties back to, to, to Europe. And so I'm interested about, like, the tribes that exist over there or in, or in other yeah. countries. Uh, yeah. No, totally. Like, I, I would honestly love if the the show started in maybe a different community of nightbreed that are told to find cabal and so it starts off just from the gate developing new mythos oh i mean all over that hell like maybe their 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 representation of baphomet just opens its eyes and says cabal you know and every nightbreed tribe is is hit with this because then you have the other ones who maybe don't worship Beth. and then you have to you have to wonder if maybe some were uh brought into you know the church and it, it starts like my brain just starts going dan brown on it it's like how far back can you go? and then you have like the idea you know of, of the way that the prophecy could be interpreted too like you know maybe some people do believe that cabal is is the one who will lead them to a new place and maybe there's like you know another sect that says well you misinterpreted the the prophecy uh, so much stuff. I feel like Mike Mike Dartrey needs to give us a call. Yeah. 
No, I think so. Cause, cause I mean, they even had that division right up until, you know, the wire where there were, where there was doubts like, no, you brought ruin to us. And then the statue becomes alive. It's like, no, you totally did bring ruin to us. Also fun fact. That's the plan. Now you need to put us through. It's Ragnarok. I, I just had like a wonderful idea of framing the Nightbreed um, television show as the only time there's ever been a monster invasion we root for. Like, what if? Why can't the world just be Midian if they if they had it first? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. Um, I I also think it would be cool if because because all of these Nightbreed are in this. You know, they're in their various respective colonies, civilizations, what have you. But undoubtedly, there have been Nightbreed that were not afforded the luxury of being tutored and involved and incorporated into thriving civilizations. Like, I'm sure you have all sorts of like rogue stuff out there that might be antagonistic or that might be feral or that might be all sorts of things. Yeah. And then like to to maybe like even like rope in like some uh you know familiar like folklore or like archetypes is like being rogue nightbreed oh God, that would be the coolest ever <laughs> okay richard you and i need to make a plan to like contact mr <laughs> yes, do it. we're gonna get this done good sir we got goals we got yeah. plans he actually went to the school down the street from where i live so so cool right, yeah. you have your way in <laughs> <laughs> i'll back you up i'll back your play all right, awesome. <laughs> uh, is there are, are there any other themes before we wrap up that you gentlemen want to that have been kind of on your in the back of your brain? Um, nothing outside of like I, I think really if you've never seen Nightbreed before, sorry we just ruined it all for you. Thank you for listening, but I I think honestly the best way to approach this material is, is don't go in expecting a horror film, a monster film as you know it. Go in really. This is big comic book x-men this really is like the x-men this is this is high fantasy with just a uh, a darker tinge than you're used to it's really excellent just, yeah mm-hmm. i kind of i kind of I love this world a lot more because reading this short story again is is it was a treat because i haven't read barker in maybe a decade and uh this was just like a return to something i forgot how much i loved if you've never read barker it just Pick up the books of blood. They're short stories. You'll recognize a lot of them. And he, he's just a, a fantastic linguist. And, and the way he sees the world and the way he makes, he allows us to see his worlds is, it's just so fascinating. Because this film, something I wanted to bring up earlier is this film has one of my, anyone who knows me from TRC knows my love of title sequences in films. Uh, and this is one of my favorites where just the word Nightbreed scrolls by and it's you can see through it, and in it are just the images of these monsters. But some of them are like violent, erotic, strange, and it's it's this wonderful quilt. It, it's it's beautiful, and it sets the tone for the film absolutely beautiful, like just perfectly. And if you haven't seen this since the theatrical cut, please please do yourself the favor and reevaluate it with the directors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any final thoughts, Richard? Yeah, no, I mean, every time I watch this movie, I, I find something something new in it, something that I, I missed the first time, whether it's just a, a design of one of the Nightbreed or whether it's just, uh, you know, how the, how the themes just reflect our contemporary society. I'm just always fascinated by it. Um, 
And yeah, as someone who is, you know, just really starting to explore uh, uh, Barker more through his writings, um, I recently picked up uh, the Book of Blood, uh, the Books of Blood, and uh, I'd read The Hellbound Heart uh, a few years earlier. But yeah, I'm just kind of making my way through his short stories now. So I just, I feel really energized by his creativity and by his world and, you know, by the, the, the themes that he's interested in exploring. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I find him a, mm-hmm. a, a fascinating, as someone who just loves horror literature and has, you know, found so much pleasure from Richard Matheson and Stephen King uh, and H.P. Lovecraft, I feel like, you know, Barker is just like, uh, uh, another avenue that I'm exploring that feels so different mm-hmm. from anything else. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the by the mythology and by the the connecting characters. You know, I saw uh, Lord of Illusions a couple years ago, which was the last um, film that Barker directed. And yeah, even even that is just like fascinating. Just like thinking about these giant mythologies that he builds and how he uses the characters. Um, you know, across across film. And, and novels and and comics and and artwork, uh, yeah. I, I really hope that the enthusiasm that I've seen kind of about you know his work recently and and with the Nightbreed show, hopefully uh, you know coming soon. I really hope that it kind of like opens up the the floodgates for more Barker adaptations, kind of like what we've seen in this King Renaissance recently. Because uh, I feel like yeah, there's just there's so much cool stuff to explore that. Really oh yeah. Different. Totally. Like, I want so much more, like, Harry D. Moore, you know? Like, because I love Munster stuff, obviously, but I also, my other uh, personal favorite niche thing is I love noir. And so Mm -hmm. this kind of hybrid Mm -hmm. of of a noir detective investigating the supernatural is the best plot device if you want to make me happy ever what's kind of fun too is the book cabal comes packaged with the last illusion which is what lord of illusions is based off of so hey you got a twofer right there because i i always found it strange you brought up the king renaissance king has been there's over 40 years of king adaptations and barker's been around almost as long he's maybe a decade Mm -hmm. earlier um or later i mean um it's funny to me though with you have the books of blood you have his novels um it's weird that we haven't gotten more adaptations because there's so much in his work that you could do a lot with because there are not a lot of barker works outside of stuff he's directly involved with there's a lot of sequels but not a lot of adaptations yeah it's it's like they took a couple things and they made franchises Mm -hmm. Or the studio dropped it like Nightbreed. Or Midnight Me Train, too, was buried for like yeah. two, three years oh, or something. Yeah. Before it finally yeah. hit the streets. And it's, it's insane to me that in this world of remakes and reboots, we haven't gotten Rawhead Rex like, give me my reboot. This is what I want. <laughs> give me All right, I'll do it. <laughs> Thank you. I'll do it. No, because the books of blood are fertile ground. Like, Richard, you're in for a treat, my friend. Yeah, I'm um, excited. You know, what is it? Is, even the, the opening page, it does this little clever phrase. It's, uh, people are like books. When we're open, we're read. You know, mm. the guy's just, mm. you know, his mind is insane. Yeah, like, the thing that I really like about Barker, because if, if I were to say, I mean, I love King a lot, but if I had to say what really sparked my love of horror... It was John Carpenter, which everyone that knows me knows that. And 
I'm very transparent about that. And then Clive Barker, because both of them have this larger than life playground that they make with everything that they do. And I love Barker because in all of his works, even if it's a smaller story, like he's making a massive world with that canvas and then just winds it up, lets it go. And instead of just beating it to Mm -hmm. death, he's like, Oh, okay. Well, here's, here's another wind up. Let that go. Here's another thing. It's he's such, has such a, a creative mind for, for world building. It's insane. And his shit is fun. (laughs) Yeah. And it, he he covered the spectrum because he started out as a playwright and like director, and then was like, "Yeah, I want to make a few bucks. I'm going to sell some short stories." Then he became a film director, and you know he was an author. He's a, he's been a pretty much a painter for almost like 20 years, really. And he's mm-hmm. it's annoying how good he is at all of it. It's kind of like when you look at Tom Cruise, and it's just like, "What can't you do?" Just son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like like Barker's like a scary Da Vinci. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he just does everything. I've loved. I actually did my senior project on on Barker in high school. Like I dedicated Aww, like an entire. Cool. I love the man and his work. He's the only. Uh, he's the only celebrity I've ever written. I wrote him when I was ten. Right after I read The Thief of Always. Oh, which, yeah, I got a response back. It was it was kind of awesome. So thanks, Clive. You made my day once. You make my day a lot, actually. Like because I was looking because I had to pull Cabal out, and I realized I own every novel the man's written. <laughs> like. Holy crap. I guess I'm a bigger fan than I thought. As it really should be. As it should be. That wraps up this episode. I'd like to extend a special thank you to uh, Richard Newby for appearing on today's episode, uh, as well as to Andrew Fleming Dunn for co-hosting. I encourage you to check out both of their work and, and fans of the show can find us on Spotify, iTunes, wherever civilized podcasts are available. And follow us on Twitter at HFT Deep Dive. Uh, so Richard, where can our, our listeners find your work? Yeah, so um, I am on Twitter, uh, at Richard L. Newby. Um, I share all the, the articles that I write uh, on there uh, that I do for The Hollywood Reporter. Um, I'm also in uh, the current issue of Fangoria uh, that came out uh, in January. I wrote about found footage films. Uh, and then I have a book, a uh, collection of short stories that comes out on February 23rd. Uh, it's called We Make Monsters Here. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you're if you're an, an audience uh, for this podcast, and I definitely think you'll dig it. Uh, lots of cool and and, and creepy stories. Um, really, just you know, plays on my love of of fairy tales of of Cronenberg of looking at you know our society and the the monsters that we make through you know the the, the systematic oppression and issues that that face contemporary america uh so i'm really excited for that to come out and that's available uh on amazon february 23rd awesome so glad you pitched that uh i would definitely encourage everyone to check it out and and check out your articles because you're awesome thank you absolutely uh and andrew where can our listeners at home find you other than here uh you can find me on the rotating chair uh we're available on pretty much everywhere podcasts are uh, available and we're also on YouTube. Um, that's really it at the moment. I'm just kind of hanging around. I'm, I'm going Bigfoot for a while, so you can catch me on Humanoids occasionally and uh, Rotating Chair pretty much always. Perfect. Um, well, and, and thank you to the listeners at home. And that wraps up this episode. Stay scary and uh, 
Hug a monster. <laughs> it was a God is an astronaut. Oz is beyond the rainbow. And uh, Midian's where the monsters live. Welcome to Midian where the monsters live. Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening. From the dawn of record human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization. The need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive. (laughs) 